electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the state of stocks with Election Day four weeks from tomorrow. We'll debate how to play this market right now with our investment committee. And joining me for the hour today are Joe Terranova, Jim Laventhal, Surat Sethi. Courtney Gibson is the president of Loop Capital Markets. Kerry Firestone is the CEO of RES Asset Management. Let's go to the wall. Stocks higher. We, of course, are keeping an eye on the president's condition today. Some new polling less than a month away now from Election Day. Joe, I turn to you first. What do you think about the movement in stocks today? Uh, Do you think they're up on improved stimulus hopes? Uh, You do have that poll that I mentioned from NBC and the Wall Street Journal, an expanding lead according to that poll for the vice president. And maybe the stock market considering Uh, Maybe we won't have a a contested election if the polling uh, tells you uh, anything accurate about where this race truly is. What do you think investors should be taking from this move? Well, I think that's correct. I think the two primary drivers uh, for the higher market today are certainly, uh, first and foremost, the possibility for more fiscal spending, fiscal stimulus, and then secondarily, the really the possibility or the removal of the possibility of a contested election. In either of those scenarios, what that potentially equates to in the near term and the dynamic within the market that you try as a, a trader or an investor to, to kind of extrapolate is a rise in yields. And I think that's the story today, Scott, is that we're finally seeing a welcome rise in yields. And that is certainly on the belief uh, of both of those actions I mentioned previously. Yeah, Kerry, what do you think about that, right? Yields popping higher. you got the 10-year at 74 basis points. So you, you've got that to consider and how you want to trade that because it does have a direct impact perhaps on, you know, growth versus value. You also have the polling, as I mentioned, and the upcoming election. And then certainly we're thinking about the president's health and what all of this means for the campaign going forward. So you've got a a number of things in there. Let's start with yields. Uh, Rates being 0.74% as a new high or recent high is pretty amazing that here we are talking about that as going up when who would have expected we would would have had such a long period where rates have been below 1%. And I think what the Fed has said is they intend to keep rates low. So the fact that they're not collapsing or there is nothing that driven them lower is positive for the economy and investors are happy about that. But I don't believe we're looking at anything like a march up in rates that could get us toward two and a half or three percent. So so rates are going to stay low, but the economy is looking more positive because the stimulus plan seems to have new legs. It looks as if something is going to be passed and investors are very positive about that. Uh, In terms of the election, you know, and, and how it's affecting the market, Friday was an interesting day because the president and the announcement of his COVID, the the market went down about 1%, not more than that, but tech stocks were down more, down 2.5%. And I I think that's part of, I guess, the 
process of, of healing in a way for a market that got a little extended on the NASDAQ side. And if you look at a chart that Vin put together for me, you can see that on September 2nd, which was the peak of the market, the percent of the market cap of the S&P allocated to technology was very high. You know, we were close to 30% and the percent of earnings about 23%. That was an extreme relative to financials and healthcare, which are underrepresented in terms of their percent of earnings compared to market cap. That has decreased on the tech side. So tech has come down as a weight on the S&P. It's still overrepresented, but of course it's growing faster. And we need that to happen. We need there to be a little more breadth in the market, more participation in healthcare, financials, and industrials. And I think that sets the stage for as you know what we expect to be a less contested election. I mean, the market seems to be saying that now with the Biden numbers going up and a little bit more positive news on a stimulus and and movement forward that we can see more participation right. on the consumer side. Court, most important thing for investors today is what? Is it the latest on the reopening? Is it the walk up to the election again one month from tomorrow? Or is it the thing that Joe said, uh, which we haven't talked about in a long time, and that's yields moving higher and the impact it's going to have on certain areas of the trade right now? Hey, Scott, great to be back. So good to see everybody today. You know, I think all of those things work together, but there's one piece that everyone has to think about, right? When you say what's most important for investors, well, it's their time horizon, right? So for me, the risk going into this election is all of zero right now, if I'm being honest with you, because ultimately, I can buy stocks when they go on sale. So if someone's concerned about one of the three options that are coming out of this election, either you know a Trump win or whether it's a split White House slash split Senate, or if it's a what do they call it these days, uh, the blue wave, I think it is. Um, you know, regardless of which one of those things uh, actually play out here in in a month from now, um, you know, I'll be prepared either with cash to pick up things as they go on sale, or whether it be to watch some of my names uh, rally into what what occurs. So, you know, again, it, it really is holistically dependent on time horizon. Now, our economy more broadly, right, so there's the market and there's the economy. I think we want people to do well. We want to see folks with jobs. We want to see a recovery. We want to see people healthy. So I think, you know, as we think about COVID it, as it relates to the markets, you know, it's, it's whether it's a reopening trade, as we start to see vaccines come into play or these antibodies work on our, our president, who is, I guess, going first and foremost into, this, uh, into these trials. Um, or whether or not it's, you know, uh, a, a potential retrenchment depending on these, these waves that we're seeing um, begin to occur. I am actually more optimistic, as I always am, um, I think, as you know, about the fact that we know how to manage the virus a little better. So I'm less concerned about the cases spiking. If we start to see the death toll rise precipitously, I will be very, very concerned. But if we start to see these cases peak and we see the deaths begin to taper off, to me, that's actually a good sign um, and people wearing masks is a good sign. Hey Jim, you know, I want to focus on the rate issue for, for a minute because it, it may be the, the most near-term issue for investors to grapple with. Morgan Stanley says and asked the, asked the question today whether a rate scare is one of the most underappreciated risks right now in the market and they also say that a move higher in rates, I'm quoting from their commentary today, 
should only further support the view, uh, as most recovery stocks are positively correlated to such a move led by financials. This is Mike Wilson. This is the idea that if you have rates moving higher, you have growth stocks, these tech stocks become less attractive, and then you have more of a push into reopen stocks or cyclical stocks or things like the financials of all places. Do you buy Mike Wilson's commentary yeah, today? I, I do. I, I think Mike has been somebody that we've learned we have to listen to when he says something. Um, I, the one word I would quibble with is scare, when we say a rate scare. Um, the, the trajectory you just laid out doesn't scare me. Um, I don't think tech stocks have to come down uh, in that scenario. I think what we're talking about is the long-awaited broadening of the rally. We've already seen industrials start to pick up some leadership, and I've said I'm waiting for financials to do so as well, but you can't do that without rates rising. Now, here's the $64,000 question. What does the Fed do in response to this? I don't think the Fed will let the 10-year get to 1% without putting some weight on it. Um, and the only way that they wouldn't put weight on it is if the virus is under control and the economy is starting to pick up speed. We're still, you know, pretty, pretty several months away from that. But in the meantime, I think that the scenario that is just laid out by Mike is exceedingly positive. One where you get sections of the market, namely financials, that have really lagged, starting to participate. That broadening of the rally would be very healthy and very welcome, in my opinion. Interesting, because, you know, Steve Leisman, our, our economics reporter, uh, has been taking a look at how economists on Wall Street are trying to model what a second wave of the virus could mean. And it directly relates to the kinds of things, Jim, that, that you just talked about. Uh, Steve, I'm wondering how they're, they're thinking about uh, all of this when you look at the fact that you've got nine U.S. states now reporting record increases in COVID cases uh, over the last seven days as just one of the issues that we need to grapple with on the course of the virus. Yeah, that's a big part of it, Scott. And we haven't really even reached the, the fall and the winter where people will be forced inside. So it's definitely high on the list of things that are out there as major unknowns. And we don't know if there's going to be a stimulus either. Uh, one economist said to me that uh, if we have stimulus, we could do 10% growth in the fourth quarter. If we don't, it may be as low as 2.5%. So there's that major variable layer on to that the variable about how we're going to react let me tell you some of the points that people have been making to me the first is there does not appear to be the political will for a major shutdown again and you can maybe see that by looking at what's happening in new york right now mayor bill de blasio in a place where there might be more support for a shutdown than in other parts of the country he's trying to do this by zip code not a city-wide shutdown it could push some businesses over the edge that have been unable that have been able to make it so far. Mark Zandi says the unemployment rate could go up by 1% per 20,000 cases. That is, if the average cases rises from 40,000 up to 60,000, you could have a 1% increase in the unemployment rate. Now, here's a big question. The Federal Reserve, Scott, has been insisting all along that a second wave is a major risk, even a 50-50 risk here. So you have to think that at least some of their policy to this point is already oriented towards that risk. 
Uh, there's not a whole lot left now in terms of what they could do after they've already promised that they're going to remain low till 2023. I don't know if it means they say, you know what, now that things are even worse, we're going to go to 2025. You have Charles Evans on the tape this morning saying very specifically that he thinks we need a big fiscal infusion and the recessionary risks are higher if we don't do that. Uh, but in terms of what the Fed has left, the one thing for sure is a major, major QE program that, as was talked about before, would probably drive down the 10-year at best. You, you raise a couple interesting points. Um, the base case, right, as you've, all, as you've, as you've always, always said for the Fed, is that there was going to be a second wave, at least according to the medical community, right? Yeah. The, the medical experts have always suggested that the base case is a second wave um, into the fall. So that's number one. The other issue is I'm wondering to the point that Jim Labenthal was making about this move higher in rates and the tolerance of the Fed if rates get even closer to 1%, which is obviously still ridiculously low, uh, but so much higher than where they've been in recent months. You know, I, I think the Fed is, is specifically holding back on QE. I think that's the major tool that they have remaining. We know they do not want to do negative rates. They haven't ruled it out entirely, but it's not like in their first five or six kinds of responses they would do. And one of the things that they're looking for, Scott, I don't think the Fed can be any clearer on this. They don't like to go there either in terms of urging politicians to do something, is they really want to see that stimulus. They do not want to have to use their tools to, to help the economy here right now. Um, there is going to be I guess some tolerance for the 10-year to rise, and they're going to hold back while they can. But then if it looks like the economy, not necessarily the 10-year, is going into a place that is of concern, that's when they would start to address the yield curve. Yeah. Um, I want to address it, too, with, with you know, my, my gang. Steve, thank you very much. Um, uh, Surat, Steve, Steve lays it out very interestingly for, for the next part of our conversation in terms of tolerance, tolerance for higher yields. Do, do technology investors right now have a tolerance for higher yields or, they, or do they become sellers and do they move into value? So I think that uh, question gets answered a couple of ways, Scott. It would be in the scenario where there's not a second wave and rates are going up for the right reasons, which is the economy's improving and we've seen more stimulus come and jobs are improving and companies are improving. At that point, that would be a worry for technology investors for a couple of reasons. One is your discount rate gets much higher. Secondly, there's an opportunity in the market for money to chase other growth areas, which hence becomes value turn changes into growth. But it's too early for that right now. I mean, my view is you barbell, you keep your tech exposure because we don't know what's going to happen with the second wave. We don't know what's going to happen with stimulus and we don't know what's going to happen with rates. But I mean, we know, point, when you say we don't the, know what's going to happen with the second wave, in what sense are you talking about? Because as I mentioned to Steve, the nine U.S. states reporting record increases in cases over the last seven days, it appears as though we're in the midst of a second wave. Now, are you more specifically referring to how economies in different states react to the second wave? Yeah, I I'm looking more on the economic data, Scott, as to what is that effect going to have and, and how are the economy is going to improve specifically in the different states and how they're going to handle it as well. So, uh, you know, I, I think you, you stay with your tech investments. You obviously do portfolio management and prudent and be prudent on it. 
Uh, but I don't think it's a question of getting them getting out of it just because you see rates moving up uh, a little bit at this point. Court, that's what Bob Backlund over at Citi is arguing today, says they raise IT uh, information technology back to overweight. He says financials look like a value trap. Kramer today says the banks are a value trap. Do you agree with that? No, Scott. And, you know, we, we talked a week ago and you asked me, were we at the bottom? And was I calling a bottom? And I, I wouldn't be wedded to it, but we saw the market continue to trend back up. Look, at the end of the day, um, you have to be in tech. Tech is the new consumer staple in, in my mind. You can, you can coin that to me if you'd like to there, Scott, because it's true. Tech is going to be here whether it's a reopening trade or not, and it's up to you to get in at numbers where you think it works for your portfolio. Um, as it relates to you know, financials, you know, people talk about financials being a value trap. Financials, that's a broad sector, guys. Come on, let's let's stop pretending like it's all just a consumer bank and it's all solely wedded to interest rates. Interest rates going up, yes, you'll see consumer banks doing well. But you can also see Citi and JP Morgan and the other large uh, consumer banks doing well at, in, an, in an environment where interest rates remain low, right? They have other businesses. They have asset management businesses. They have investment banking businesses. We're seeing capital markets exploding. Look at the other ways that financial services firms can actually outperform in this yeah, environment. Yeah, but they haven't, though. Uh, I mean, I'm they, sorry, they, but, but they, they haven't. They, they haven't in totality since what? Since the end of March? Can, can you get in right now? Absolutely. Are you seeing other spaces within financial services doing well, like, again, asset managers, like the private equity firms? Yes, because money is cheap. You have $10 trillion behind some of these things, $2 trillion in PE on the sidelines for investment. So, Scott, you know, I, I, I hear you. And, and part of the problem is the rhetoric that you get around consumer banks not outperforming because it's, it's sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy where everyone's kind of ho-hum, ho-hum on financials. And then you see these guys just like last quarter with kind of knockout um, you know, earnings reports, I think you're going to see it again because, again, people are underestimating what these banks can do so, in a time of low interest rates. So, so I think people, this is an opportunity to get in, Scott. Like, let's look at where City is right now. It's trading at what? Tangible book value, I think, is somewhere around $69 a share, and it's trading at, what, 44 or so right now? I mean, it's still a buy. So I want to I have more of this debate, Carrie. Or who, who wants to take the other side of that? Because that argument, that argument, Carrie, has been made repeatedly over the last many months. The XLF's down 20% on the year. I heard that all before. It hasn't it, worked. Why, why well, would it work now? You know, over what time frame has it well, worked, it, Scott? Like, for, go ahead, Carrie, I'm sorry. Wait. What period, Courtney, have the banks worked for so, investors, right? I mean, people have come yeah. on the show repeatedly so I, and I, made the case court that that in that you got to buy yeah. the banks that they're 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 trading you know uh -huh. well below book value i've heard that forever right and then the the stocks go nowhere what why would it be different i want to get carrie's perspective if you well, bought them a week ago you're up right now in it right now so again it's time horizon scott and i hate to keep going back to it but it is time horizon if you're a short-term trader it's time horizon, right? If you're a long-term buy and hold investor, the banks have actually worked, depending on what kind of bank you're talking about, what kind of financial services firm you're talking about. So Carrie, I'll, I'll let you pick that up, but we have clients that have actually won with quote unquote financials over time. So you, okay, I'll, I'll, let's make a distinction. Let's make a distinction. Because okay. you, in, in the points yeah. that you make, Court, um, for certain, 
some private equity firms and other areas of the financials have definitely worked. And I don't want to make a blanket yeah. comment that the financials Thank as you. a group, right. I mean, I think we're talking about, I'm trying to talk about, Thank for you. example, the banks, right? Banks. The bank stocks, the cities, yeah. the JP Morgans, the Morgan Stanley, the Bank of America, the Wells Fargo's of the world, the big banks, Court. And those yeah. stocks have not worked. Sure. And I've had people come on this program repeatedly and say they're going to work. And who cares about interest rates because they got all these other businesses and they're trading for such large amounts below their book values. And people go into these stocks and then they sit there and they feel like they're in quicksand because they go nowhere. Um, you so, asked Carrie a question. Carrie. Okay. So, so here's what I would say on, on the banks. Uh, we, we don't own any banks except for First Republic. It's not a big money center and it's not a big investment bank. So, and and I, we've been consistent about that for, for years. And a big factor was lower interest rates, which has happened. Then you have commissions coming down, a negative. Then you've got all the idea of, oh, investment banks, they get some big piece of every deal. Well, I guess that's not happening right now. And then they've got a lot of commercial uh, real estate loans. And guess what's happening to big commercial buildings in cities like New York, Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles? Uh, those buildings are empty and those owners are going to have trouble with their debts to the banks. So I understand that they're down, that they're selling for very low multiples if you believe the E of the PE. Um, but, I, but I think there's still a lot of risk. And if you have a tolerance for that risk, if you can say, I'm going to buy JP Morgan and Citi or Wells Fargo and put that aside and not worry about it, I'm not going to make it a big position, I think it's fine to give that bet a chance to work. And it probably will over a long enough period of time. It's just hard to make the case right now versus other sectors. That's that's the way we look at it. Okay, and and so we own plenty on. of financials, but Did they're S&P Global on and one other types of names. I, I, hang on just one second, guys. I, I want to go down to Kayla Tausche, uh, who's down in Washington, D.C. She has uh, the latest for us. More, I think, on uh, the news of the White House press secretary, uh, Kayleigh McEnany, testing positive for COVID. That's right, Scott. Care of our colleagues at NBC News. They're piecing together a little bit more about the timeline of when the press secretary learned that something might have been amiss. In her statement on Twitter, where she said first that she tested positive, she also said that she definitively had no knowledge of Hope Hicks, the president's top communications aide, having tested positive when McEnany briefed the press that day at 11 a.m. But NBC News is reporting, according to a senior White House official, that McEnany was pulled from the president's trip to Bedminster, New Jersey, for two separate fundraising events later that afternoon. She was not told why, according to NBC's reporting, and did not learn until later that afternoon that Hope Hicks had tested positive. Uh, so that is some interesting detail here, that McEnany knew that she was pulled from the trip earlier in the day but was not told why, did not learn until later in the day that Hicks has te had tested positive. McEnany had continued to brief uh, the White House press corps that day and in informal gaggles throughout the weekend while she was testing negative as recently, Scott, as yesterday evening. But she said she learned this morning that she tested positive, though she continues to have no symptoms. Scott. A trip, Kayla, um, that remains a point of controversy in its own right in terms of why the president was allowed to go to Bedminster, New Jersey, for those events even after it was known that Hope Hicks had tested positive and the White House had responded to that, saying that, quote unquote, White House operations uh, had approved that. 
That's right, Scott. And it's unclear exactly what the timestamp was on the president's first positive test. We know that he took two tests that day, one rapid test that came back positive and then a PCR test later in the day that took later to return results. And that was the positive result that he revealed around one in the morning. On Friday, the White House press secretary has said that she won't give the exact time of the president's tests or any test thereafter. And they've repeatedly said that that's for security reasons. But as we sort of piece together exactly what decisions were made and when, it is relevant information. And now the New Jersey Department of Health says that it is attempting to reach out to 206 people who were in and around those New Jersey events uh, to try to trace those contacts associated with it. Yeah, a confusing weekend, uh, to say the least. Uh, I think we can all agree on that. Uh, Kayla Tausche with the latest on Kaylee McEnany and her uh, condition and her diagnosis with COVID. Thank you for that. We'll come back to you uh, as necessary. Let's get back to our conversation. And Joe, I want to do it this way. So we have this debate over whether the financials are a good place to be, whether the banks are a good place to be. You made a move today with Capital One. Tell me why. A stock that you bought. Joe, you hear me? I guess not. All right, I don't think Joe can hear me. Uh, Surat, you want to weigh in on the banks? Yeah, I, I will weigh in. And, and, and Scott, you know my view on this. And Court, I, I totally agree with you. Um, look, you're going to go for high quality banks. And within the banks, I, I agree. Like, you have to look at the JP Morgans. We own JP Morgan Bank of America. And it's a time frame issue. I'm not looking for the next month or six weeks to this one go up 30, 40%. It'd be great if it did. But the businesses that they have, the long tail businesses of asset management, of M&A, uh, these are things that are going to help them. And yes, the overhangs are credit provisions. We realize that you could have a democratic blue wave, but these are priced into the stock. And, and I think the idea of owning some of these stocks in a diversified portfolio helps you because when money does go back, and by the way, if you looked at last year, when money did go back into financial, it will happen. It's just that you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. And if you're going to go for it, go for high quality, and some of the things that even within financials to look at is, you know, some of the regionals might not do so well. So we've actually pruned some of those, gone to some of the higher quality banks and spread it around financials into whether it's the Blackstones of the world uh, and then some of the others, the insurance companies, where you can kind of create this overall portfolio, but it just doesn't have to be six of the largest banks. You know, Joe, I, th I think you can hear me now and maybe you could hear me before and I just couldn't and our viewers couldn't hear you. I was asking you about your buy of Capital Hi, One. It's Joe Terranova. Joe, can you hear me now or not? I was just told you were good. Are you, can you hear me? No. I guess Joe can't hear me. Okay. Maybe Joe's not good yet. Anyway, I, what? Okay. Hang on just one second. Let's do this. Let's take a break. We'll come back on the other side, I'm told. And check out this mystery chart. It's a consumer stock that's up nearly 40% in the last six months. With a bullish call on it today, some of our experts who own it hopefully can hear us. We'll debate it next. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises.
Welcome back, everybody. I'm Sue Herrera. Here is your CNBC News update at this hour. Commercial bankruptcies surged last month. The legal services firm Epic says Chapter 11 filings shot up 78 percent from year ago levels. For the first nine months of 2020, filings are up 33 percent from the same period last year. Penn State University announcing there will be no spring break next year to reduce the risk of spreading COVID-19. Spring classes will start later in January. Penn State joins a growing number of colleges and universities, eliminating their traditional spring vacations. In South Carolina, long lines on the first day of early voting. Today is also the last day for South Carolinians to register to vote. And in Britain, another day of more than 12,000 new confirmed coronavirus cases. Reported infections surged on Saturday after the government reported a testing glitch that kept thousands of test results from being properly counted. You are up to date, Scott. That's the news update this hour. Back to you. Okay. I appreciate that, Sue Herrera. Thank you very much. All right. Maybe the third time's a charm. Joe Terranova, can you hear me now? Scott. I could hear you now. All right. There you go. On the phone. Better than better than nothing. Joe, we were talking about the financials. I wanted to hear you about your new buy of Capital One. And I know our viewers did as well. So please tell us why you bought those and what you think about the financials now, Joe. So, Scott, what I would add to uh, the conversation previously is let's not forget that technology moving forward and growth is going to be the place to be. But there also is an opportunity for investors to go after value in the form of financials. The question is, where does the money come from? And the money comes directly from the aggregate bond indexes, which investors have been piling into, fixed income. That's exactly where the money is going to come from if we get the lifted yield. So what I've done here is anticipating a much welcomed rise in yields. I've gained exposure to Capital One. It's a consumer finance name that I've owned previously in the past. They're going to report earnings here in the back half of October. I expect net interest income to exceed expectations. I view them as having a very strong balance sheet, and they are also a leader in terms of digital finance. In addition to that, I also took a position in Texas Capital Bank Corp, an energy bank. It's a way to get exposure to a potential energy recovery. You see energy up today. Uh, significantly. I don't want to buy energy equity specifically, so I combine the thesis of banking, a rise in yields, and a little bit of exposure in energy. The position I have in Capital One is obviously bigger than the position I have in Texas Capital. Okay, good stuff. Joe, thank you. I'm glad we could get that, that done. Now let's do our call of the day, and it is a bullish one on Starbucks. That comes over at Opco. They call it an actionable buy idea right now. We like actionable ideas on this program. Price target goes to 101 from 85, an attractive entry point, an opportunity. They say, Jim, you own Starbucks. You know, we just talked about Starbucks last week, how I think there was an upgrade and it was a firm that was using sort of its own modeling and its own numbers because you weren't really getting any information out of Kevin Johnson, the CEO of Starbucks. China remains a significant issue for Starbucks. So what about this call now? Is it an actionable buy idea, as Opco says? 
I do think it is because I see an asymmetric uh, risk return uh, uh, spectrum here. Um, let's just say, I mean, first off, China international is about 23% of business, and I think that's actually more of an opportunity than a risk. China's economy mm -hmm. clearly has been reopening, and they're doing really quite well. So I, I think that's an opportunity more than a risk. I think what the question is is what goes on here in the U.S. And, you know, Starbucks now trades at 30 times uh, next year's earnings. That's very reasonable in this current interest rate environment. But more to the point, that's an earnings stream that is not reflecting a fully opened, fully reopened economy. So imagine when the U.S. economy is fully reopened, whether it's next year or the year thereafter, I just see there's more room to grow into the share price of that target of 101 as the economy continues to reopen. And the multiple as it stands right now makes me comfortable that the downside is limited. So it's that asymmetric risk return that really leaves me comfortable. One last thing and then I'll, I'll stop. You know, they have about $4 billion of cash on the balance sheet right now. That's from the Nestle deal they did about 18 months ago. And that's cash that can either be used to make some interesting acquisitions or to return capital to shareholders. And I don't think that's priced in either. Well, the, the, look, the, the stock's moving up as we speak. It's at 88 and 33 uh, cents. You say you need an all clear on the second wave for it to go above 90. I mean, apparently not. The stock's on pushing no. on 90 right now. Well, I'm talking about the 101 target, but I think it'll get there, Scott. I mean, I think this, let me rephrase this. I think this is a stock that at its current price is still reflecting much more pandemic impact than is likely to be the case over the next 12 months. That's why I see the asymmetric return being to the upside, not to the downside. I see downside protection at this level. Okay. Um, I see, I'm just looking at some information that I see, you're mentioning like hotspots and what we need about the virus, uh, some, some more developing information about the New York City school system, which I'm trying to get some more information on uh, as well. So I'll keep, keep my eye on that. Jim, let me stay back with you while I try and do that. Uh, Roku's price target gets raised yep. to 227 from 190 at Bank of America. Ten reasons to stay long, they say. So I, I, we've talked about this stock on so many occasions with you, but what do you make of this call? To 270 from 190. I, I think, look, yeah, I mean, that would be basically the same sort of return that it's had over the last month. We know that this stock tends to move in very, very large cycles, both to the downside and the upside. But right now it's in an upswing. So that roughly 12 percent return, I think you could very easily see that before the year end. Um, I don't think this is a stock that trades much on valuation, but if I were to do that, I would say, look, it's 11 times next year's sales, which is right in the range of 10 to 15 that it's been in uh, for most of the last three years. So I could easily see another turn being added to that, which would bring it to the target. Bottom line, Scott, and you know this, it's a trading vehicle for me. I think it will get there, but if this thing turns down before it reaches, I'm not going to hang on for that price target. I'll get out when it starts turning down. Yeah. Um, the, the Bloomberg is reporting, I, I had mentioned, you know, I had noticed something about New York City schools. Bloomberg is reporting that New York City schools in uh, what they deem to be a, a quote-unquote hot spots are going to close tomorrow. So we'll try and get you more information on that. I bring it up because I want to see if there's any market reaction, obviously, to uh, any of that news as we keep progressing in the reopening and what impact news like that may have uh, on the stock market. And that, uh, that was according to uh, Governor Cuomo as well. So again, we'll try and get you more information uh, on that and bring it to you as soon as we can. Up next, though, the big ETFs to watch today and tomorrow. Don't miss the reveal of CNBC's second annual Financial Advisor 100 list. The number one pick will join us live on the half. Looking forward to that. And we'll see you after this.
What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. Our guest today, Kevin O'Leary, chairman of iShares, of O'Shares, excuse me, ETF and Shark Tank co-host, and Jim Lowell, CIO of Advisor Investments and Fidelity Investments Editor-in-Chief. And of course, I'm Bob Pisani. Jim, biotech, a big leader today. Biotech ETF, that's IBB, up over 2%. We've got some deal news. We have the president taking Regeneron Pharmaceuticals experimental antibody drug cocktail, highest level for the IBB since July. Overall market definitely enjoying a relief rally on better, I suppose, expected news relative to the president's health. And, of course, you targeted it, BBH and other uh, ETFs focused on the biotechnology sector, clearly benefiting from that tailwind as well. Anytime you can see the leader of the free world recovering a little bit better than expected on news of some sort of biotechnology intervention, it's going to be good for the sector. Yeah, and Kevin, you've got to be a happy man this year. Your O-Shares Internet Giants ETF, that's the symbol, O-G-I-G. It's been a monster this year, up about 70%. Shares outstanding have tripled. You've seen huge inflows into this fund. But you've got to admit, you're owning all the right stuff in this fund. You've got the Amazon, you've got Alibaba, Tencent, Alphabet, Facebook. What could go wrong at this point, if anything? Well, you know, Bob, I think we're only in the third inning of this digitization because it's not just U.S. domestic fangs. This index encompasses the entire globe, and the trend remains intact everywhere. Whether you're in China, Europe, South America, everybody is moving to the digital pivot, direct to consumer, and that's not going to change. And the reason that I got involved in this index is those are the companies that I write huge checks to to actually digitize my company. So I'm trying to get some back, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I think the important thing, Kevin, is you've hit all the right stocks this year. You've got another uh, great ETF out there, the Dividend ETF, OUSA. Hasn't done as well, but Procter & Gamble, et cetera, also very good names to own at this point. Any idea when dividend dividend payers might start outperforming? Well, you know, it's interesting, Bob, because it's almost five years to the day when you interviewed me about this when I listed it on the New York Stock Exchange. And it's done exactly what it's supposed to. This is my largest core holding. This is a very conservative fund that's a dividend strategy. And the thing you have to think about today for dividend strategies is 
quality of the balance sheet. You can get a 10% dividend on an energy stock right now, but I'd argue that's very dangerous. And we don't own things like that. We care about what is sustainable because this is a product that's designed to be a core holding for people that are trying to distribute five or six or seven percent a year from their trust, their fund, their pension, their sovereign wealth fund, whatever it is. Yep. And I think the quality balance sheet is what matters and that's what's inside. This is basically the S&P 500 less all yep. the stuff you don't want to own. It's about a hundred stocks yep. that are the best quality in the S&P. So OUSA has been around a while and I'd stack it up against any dividend strategy. But thanks for the call out because I built okay. it with you. Yes, thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, thank you, Jim and Kevin. Coming up on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, Armando Senra, that's the head of BlackRock's iShares Americas. This is the largest ETF family in the world. He's going to update us on the state of ETF investing and we're, where ESG is heading for the rest of the world. That's ETFEdge.cnbc.com. Scott, back to you. All right, Bob, appreciate that. Look forward to it as well. Our experts are ready to... Answer your questions next on Ask Halftime, and you can send them in now by video. We'll play it on the air. Email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. We're back in 30 seconds. All right, it's time to answer your questions now. Courtney, first up for you, a video question from Sean in New York City. Oh, this is Sean from New York City. I'm looking to get into some of the ESG stocks, um, individual equities, and just trying to time the market right. Is this a good time to buy, or should I be waiting um, after the, till after the election? Hmm. What do you think? Interesting. It, yeah, so interesting. So first and foremost, I'm, I'm going to tell you that uh, timing the market, if any of us could do that right all the time, we would probably not be sitting here right now. But two, I think ESG is something of a strategy that you buy for the long term. Money has been flowing into ESG products. ESG ETFs have been outperforming the S&P on a broader scale. So I think absolutely it's a place that you want to be. Um, whether you buy now or buy later, you know, I think now is an interesting time to be buying ESG strategies, just given the fact that millennial portfolio managers are kind of taking over at this point. And if you know anything about millennials, they also care about environmental social governance. They care about socially responsible investing. So skate where the puck is going and it's going there right now. I'll even give you a name. Um, Brookfield Energy Partners, take a look, renew, I'm sorry, Brookfield Renewable Energy, BEP, is one that you really want to potentially take a look at from the renewable side. Um, and from a financials perspective, bam. All right, good stuff. Appreciate the name uh, as well. We see that stock uh, moving higher as we speak. Uh, Surat, to you, XPO from Mark in New York. Uh, what do you think about it now? You've mentioned it many times on the program. How about right now? Um, so I still like it a lot. The, the news this morning was that they are putting up their European supply chain up for business. This was part of the reorg that they were looking at about a year ago, and then they pulled it back. I think there's a lot of value in this company, even if you break it up into some of the parts. It's right in the reopening space, uh, space and it's also in the COVID space. So I think you know there's a long runway. The stock's done well this year, but uh, I, I think you can buy these, uh, buy the stock at these levels. Surat, thank you for that. All right, Joe, Charles in L.A., Albemarle, buy, sell, hold right now. Ooh, well, obviously for me it's a hold, Scott. I bought it at the upper 90s and then I sold it out in the mid-80s. Uh, that's a losing trade, and that really was because of Tesla's battery day when they indicated the potential to open a lithium mine in Nevada. This weekend, however, you've got Barron's, which has come out and defended the lithium stocks. They've identified uh, Albemarle as one of the names to own. 
and then clearly today you're seeing significant strength in the material space. That's why there's a lift, but I still say this stock is a hold. Okay. Jim, to you from Stephen Maine, Dow Chemical, buy, sell, hold right now? Uh, I think it's a buy right here. I mean, I would buy more if I didn't have a large position in it. Uh, look, this is a stock, a solid material stock with a 5.9% dividend yield. And that yield is telling you something. That's the market's way of saying it thinks it's going to get cut. But it's down from about 7.2% a few months ago because the price has appreciated, meaning the market is coming to grips with the fact that they're not going to cut the dividend. I like Dow Chemical for the long term. Last but not least, Carrie, to you from Elizabeth in North Carolina. Wants to know about Home Depot. What do you think about it right here? Buy it now or is it too high? I like it here, Elizabeth. The stock had a mammoth run from the bottom in March, and then it kind of took a pause most recently. Remember, it's one of the few retailers that's had shown incredible growth this year. The earnings were above expectation. The housing stock is not only aging, but we've had a lot of turnover in houses because of home sales being so strong in this COVID environment. And that's going to mean people are going to spend more money on their homes. They're doing a lot of it themselves. And that's not going to end for many quarters to come. Okay. Appreciate that. Please keep your video questions coming. Keep all the questions coming. We'll play them on air. We'll read your question on the air. You can send them to AskHalftime at CNBC.com. We have more trades straight ahead as we go to break. Take a look at some of the stocks hitting new highs today, including Target, Deer, and United Rentals. Halftime is back right after this. We're back on the Halftime Report. It's time for the futures outlook. The NASDAQ 100 Volatility Index futures are now open for trading on the CME. Scott Nations is breaking down this volatility play. Hey, Scott. Hi, Scott. Yeah, it's an interesting product uh, and good news for volatility traders. VolQ measures 30-day implied volatility, as you said, on the NASDAQ 100 index. And the ticker symbol for the futures is VLQ. Now, Scott, this is going to be an important tool for investors as more portfolios start to look more like the NASDAQ 100 index. And, but VolQ is different than traditional volatility indexes because it focuses strictly on at-the-money options, the options that are most important to investors and hedgers. And, Scott, as you know, traditional volatility indexes use hundreds of options, many of them way out of the money, some of them 50% or more out of the money. And those aren't really very useful unless you're looking for a lottery ticket. So by focusing on at-the-money options, VolQ reduces issues like skew and some of the noise that's created by some of those issues should be a really fascinating tool for hedgers and traders. Appreciate that. Scott, you be well. We'll talk to you soon. I got to take a break. We'll do final trades on the other side. Thanks, man. All right. And with the election just one month away, do not miss a town hall with Joe Biden hosted by NBC's Lester Holt. That's tonight, 8 Eastern on CNBC and NBC. We're back right after this. Miss the show? Don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast. Market-moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and, of course, Ask Halftime. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app and subscribe to the Halftime Pod today. I want to welcome you back. We'll do final trades in just a moment, though. I do want to tell you, new at noon, that... Dan Loeb's third point uh, has a new position in that company right there, Snowflake. That's according to their monthly investor report. 
uh, I think it's my understanding that they, they got an allocation from the IPO, which was wildly successful, uh, one of the biggest uh, that we've seen in technology, certainly in recent memory. Their shares of, of Snowflake up 5%. Uh, Joe, you have a comment on this of third point getting a position in, in Snowflake. Um, and I mean, we talked about it on the day. Uh, remember, we made a big deal about it because it was a very big IPO. Uh, and Frank Slootman, the CEO running this company, very highly uh, thought of. And this is a red hot space in terms of uh, enterprise software. It, it, it is. And I, and I wonder if, Scott, this is not the first of what will be many institutional investors uh, that were afforded. Uh, an allocation and decided to hold on to it based on the fundamentals, the management team, and the story moving forward. So I like what Dan Loeb is doing here in holding it as we look forward, and I don't think he'll be the first. I'll think he'll be many others. Yeah, you've got shares, uh, you know, obviously a, a high volume on the stock. It's up about 6% uh, on the day, $240. Let's do uh, final trades. Uh, Courtney, what do you have for me? How about CVS? 70% um, of the U.S. population lives within three minutes of a CVS. So whether you like the growth prospects of that in a second wave or whether you like potentially if a Joe Biden win does happen, um, the Medicaid potential expansion, it's a name you want to hold uh, for the long term. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, Carrie, quick, please. Uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, BAH, it's one of the leading consultants. They particularly work for the Department of Defense. They're agnostic as to the winner oh. of the election. Okay, Jim, I need a name. Uh, Greenbrier, rails are breaking out. Surratt, name. Constellation Brands, you got the beer. Joe? That's what I like. Seattle Genetics. <laughs> All right, that does it for us. Thanks for watching The Exchanges Now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Imagine a beautiful afternoon. The sun is shining and you get to enjoy it all because you just sat down on your John Deere mower. The smooth ride lets you escape into your yard. Intuitive controls make you feel like you're one with the machine. And with attachments for every season, you can enjoy it all year long. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand what it's like to drive a John Deere mower, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.